Lord, I just ask that in this next uh, few minutes that we spend opening your word together, that you, your spirit would be present among us, filling us and, uh, with, with knowledge and guiding us and speaking to us as I'm presenting and reading from and attempting to proclaim the good news of your word. I thank you that whatever my own weaknesses and mistakes that I make, my trust is not my ability to scatter seeds, but in your power to grow them into a whole field. Um, But we do pray that wherever those seeds fall, for soft, receptive hearts, uh, that you'd speak to me even as I speak, uh, that you would be made known, that you would make opportunities for us to respond to you. And especially I pray that it may be said of us, whether us as individual individuals or us as your church, um, and as families, that wherever we go, it may be said of us that we bring joy and healing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So when we come to Acts chapter 8, we really find the church in a state of crisis. The church is scattering. There's a core group of apostles that remains in Jerusalem, but otherwise the church in its massive form, its crowds of people, are dispersing, spread out. The major catalyst for this dispersion was the stoning of Stephen, which we've read about and thought about for the last couple weeks, and the subsequent ravaging or the hurting, the damaging of the church by Saul. At the beginning of chapter 8, we read this that Saul was one of the witnesses of of Stephen's stoning, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. They're filled with grief. This is a heavy burden of grief upon the church. Saul, and on top of that, it didn't end with Stephen dying, Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, going into people's homes, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Now last week, Mike pointed out the contrast, particularly in how the Sanhedrin uh, reacted to Stephen and the message of the gospel versus Stephen's response to them, and in many ways, the responses to each other, how Stephen responded to the Sanhedrin, how the Sanhedrin responded to them, were in many ways reflections of their responses to the gospel. Whether hatred and resentment and rejection that was taken out towards Stephen, really what they were rejecting was God and, and his message, compared to the humility and the compassion and forgiveness that we see in Stephen, even while he's being stoned. Then we get to verse 4, and it has this transition word. In the LSB, it's therefore. In most of them, it's therefore or so. It's a transition, which when you think about it, is somewhat counterintuitive when it says what they went about doing. This infant Jewish Christian church was in crisis mode. Again, this was brought on this time by external forces. It's not internal corruption causing issues this time. It's external forces, though by a fellow Jew. Saul is a Jew doing this. And it scattered them, which is, this is reminiscent of exile-era persecution, of the generations that Israel spent 
away from home before God allowed them to come back, regroup again in Jerusalem. But the response of the church, even as it becomes decentralized, is not to give up, it's not to fizzle out or to be silenced. Although do, I want to note, that they, they did what they could to preserve their lives. They were avoiding danger as much as they could. They weren't lining up at Saul's door asking to be martyred, right? But they also weren't backing down from proclaim, for proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, as their God and emperor and king. No matter who it upset or what it cost them, they were willing to proclaim that. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about proclaiming the good news of the word. So they're, they're filled with grief. They're faced with threats and danger. And what do they do? They proclaim the good news. Next in chapter 8, in the next few verses that come, we're going to get a, a series of really interesting stories centering mainly around one disciple, Philip in particular, who we'll see introduced today before returning back to Saul. So we have this, this person, Saul, who's introduced at the beginning of chapter 8, then we're going to go to Philip, and it comes back to Saul. Uh, with Philip, you get this story of Philip in Samaria, and Simon, the magician who wants to follow Jesus, but also he kind of has this idea that he can purchase the Jesus magic for himself and just kind of add it to his repertoire of magic. Uh, so he's kind of confused, but he appears genuine. And then Philip encounters this Ethiopian eunuch, if you're familiar with that story. It's a really cool story. He comes to this incredible saving knowledge of Christ. He's baptized. And then there's even this teleportation type thing that happens with Philip. He gets whisked whisked away by the Spirit. Um, Spirit snatched is the way my translation. He gets snatched away by the Spirit. Um, And this all happens in verses 9 through 40 before transitioning the focus back to Saul and his violence against the church, and how that's going to be addressed by God intervening directly in his story. But before all of that, those exciting, action-packed stories, there are these four verses introducing Philip. And I think it's worth kind of just slowing down during this weird limbo week and not, get, not getting ahead of ourselves too far and just looking at these four verses. And it's, it, I found it pretty rewarding just to think about this. Starting with verse 5, just keep going here. It says, Now Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began preaching Christ to them. So Philip is, this isn't the first time he's mentioned. Um, He's the second of the the seven men that were listed, along with Stephen, back in in chapter 6. So he's one of those seven Hellenist or Greek-speaking, Greek-culturally-influenced Jews who is selected to minister to the physical needs of the community. If Philip brings the gospel, the presence of the gospel, by bringing his own presence to Samaria. And this is a significant advancement outwards from Jerusalem, bringing the progression a little bit closer to those, the ends of the world, or the ends of the earth uh, that Jesus referred to. Samaria specifically this particular area would have been one of the most contentious places for a Jew to preach. I'm just going to read this out of the Reformation Study Bible. It has a pretty good summary of the situation here. Samaritans, thought to be descended from intermarriage between Israel's northern tribes and pagan peoples relocated by Assyria. So already they're kind of viewed as, well, they're just half Jews, you know. 
They revered the five books of Moses, but not the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. And they combined devotion to idols with formalistic service to the Lord. Relationships between Jews and Samaritans were strained at best and hostile at worst. Jesus reached out to Samaritans in grace. You can see that in John 4. Now, even as he ca- uh, ca- categorized them as outside the covenant people, by preaching Jesus as the Christ to Samaritans, Philip carries the gospel not only across geographical boundaries, but also across a vast religious and racial divide. In fact, if you look back a, a little bit to Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 55, um, sorry, back to chapter, I might have wrote, it might be forward to chapter 9, it might, might, might have meant chapter 6, and now I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, the verses are 51 to 55. You'll see it wasn't very long ago. Jesus was actually rebuking his disciples for wanting to call down fire on the Samaritans who didn't make them feel very welcome. The Samaritans didn't really welcome them, and they, and they said, well, can we call down fire from them and destroy them? And Jesus, whoa, no, 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 that's not, your, that's not what to do. Um, the opposite is the case in this time. As we see in verse 6, it says, the crowds with one accord were giving attention, so instead of being rejected, they were actually accepting the message. They were giving attention to what was being said by Philip. They heard and saw the signs which he was doing. So again, we have this mention of signs, which is similar to what we saw with even Jesus, of course, but then with John and Peter and uh, Stephen. Philip's message was accompanied by signs, which attested to the truth and the authority of his message. Specifically, you have in the next two verses, in verse 7, some specific signs that were happening are described here. Jesus' power over both the physical and spiritual afflictions are being demonstrated here, yet again, according to the pattern that we've seen. For many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So these signs, naturally, they draw attention and they keep attention. They keep people's attention while inviting people to understand more about the story and the power behind all of this healing and miraculous signs that are happening. And then we get to my favorite verse here. Verse 8 says, There was great joy in that city. This, to me, is the ultimate effect or symptom of the signs and miracles. Even, Even the miracle itself is this joy. The story of Philip here, even before getting on to the rest of the really interesting and exciting stories, already we've seen the story of Philip representing what can happen when the church stays focused in the midst of pain and grief and affliction, in the midst of even being physically displaced. They're focused on helping make sure the gospel continues to be spoken and received, and it results in healing and in joy. Last week, Mike brought up the unstoppable, prevailing nature of God's sovereignty and his plan and his mission. This is evident in the effects of the gospel. And it, it provides proof of the prediction that Gamaliel made back in chapter 5, when the other Pharisees wanted to kill Peter and John. You remember Gamaliel? It's a really fun name, Gamaliel. Back in... Uh, Yeah, I have it on the screen here. Chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. I'm just going to read it again. 
because I love this. When they heard this, they became furious and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time and said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who were following him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away people after him. He too perished, and all those who were following him were scattered. This dispersion, the scattering, typically results in the movement dying. So he says, in this present case, I also say to you, stay away from these men, let them alone, for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or you may even be found fighting against God. So Gamaliel's comparing this Jesus movement, this new thing that they haven't seen for very long, to some previous uprisings of people, whether political or religious movements or kind of mixed after being dispersed, lost all momentum. By contrast, this new Jesus way, these Jesus followers, only continues to grow and to grow and grow stronger, tangibly and visibly even, bringing physical and spiritual healing and joy. There was great joy in that city. What a cool statement. I mean, think about the significance of that. It's talking about a whole city. Not that, there, that all everyone's problems went away. That's certainly not what it says. It doesn't say that all the pain and all the suffering went away, but there was great joy. Joy was added to the city. In many ways, this is like seeing a direct fulfillment of what the angels declared back in Luke chapter 2. Same author, remember. The, this book is like a continuation of the book Luke started, uh, the book of Luke. And back towards the beginning of this epic saga, Luke introduced to us some shepherds near Bethlehem where Jesus was born who witnessed the dazzling proclamation of Jesus' birth. And what did the angel who spoke to the shepherds say to them? Anyone off the top of your head? Good news of great joy. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I don't have a slide for it, but I have it in here. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Luke 2, verse 10, is a declaration of great joy that is to come, which will be for all the people. And Acts 8, 8 is a, de- a declaration of the great joy that has come, a witness to the truth of this gospel proclaimed by the angel. And my prayer is that this can be said of our cities, our communities, our towns and villages, even our army bases, that there is great joy there because of God's people, ministering to each other with his word, by his spirit, for his son, accomplishing his mission. I paraphrase Mike's phrase, those five things. God's people, word, spirit, son, and mission. Regardless of what else is happening in our neighborhoods or around the world, let the church be described in such a way that we leave a place with more joy wherever we go, whenever we go, whoever we are. 
because Christian joy is abundant, connected not to what's going on in our own lives or around us, but to an unending source that extends in every direction. Even you look back at what God has already done or forward at what he promises to finish and complete doing, there are always ways Christ is bringing joy into our lives, even in unexpected ways, if we have the eyes and ears to receive it. This time of year, most of us, I like to think, would associate with pretty fun holiday traditions and celebrations. Uh, it can mean a lot of extra fun and excitement of you know, joy and happiness and warm memories made with loved ones. It can also bring up a lot of painful memories, uh, pangs of longing for loved ones that we miss or accentuating feelings of loneliness or insecurity or failure. You know, this is also one of the times of the year where there's the highest number of people struggling with those issues of depression and anxiety. Uh, so today, this Sunday, after Thanksgiving, before Advent, I want to take a few minutes to reflect on first gratitude, just looking back at with gratitude and contentment for what God has done and is doing while then preparing us to look forward to the next season. Starting next week, well, technically this Friday is December 1st, so that's the start of Advent. Now, leading up to Thanksgiving, I, I was gathering together a few different passages of Scripture relating to gratitude and Thanksgiving, and let me tell you, there are a lot of them. <laughs> there are so many, especially in the Psalms and Old, but they're all throughout the Bible. I could stand here reading through them all day. I think I, ha I was up to like 50 verses or something, and it was like, and I would have been 45 minutes to read through them all from start to finish. Um, but we can at least read a few of them together um, that I picked out here for today. Because of Christ, we too in the North Country of New York may partake in the faithful love of God. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have tapped into a well of peace that passes all understanding. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Go to God first with what weighs on your heart. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, peace that passeth all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here's a few more, just quick exhortations from Paul and, and James. 2 Corinthians 9.15 Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Colossians 4.2 Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5.16-18 Rejoice always, Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. That's pretty concise and frank. Uh, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. First Timothy 4, 4 through 5. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. The context of that verse is even more interesting, but I won't go there today. Then James, switching over from Paul to James, ever the, the pragmatist, says, consider it all joy, my brothers, 
when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then James uh, 1.17, a little further on, every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. I want to switch to a slightly longer passage. If you want to read along with me, I'm going to go to Psalm chapter 118. Did we read from 119 this morning? Yeah. This is just the chapter before that. This, is, this whole psalm is really a psalm of thankfulness, a song or a poem from a man who's looking back and simply giving thanks to God for his loving kindness, his steadfast, unfailing love that never never fails, even in the midst of seemingly impossible scenarios, which you'll see him reflecting back on through this from his own perspective. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love, or steadfast loving kindness, endures forever. Let all Israel repeat, his faithful love endures forever. Let Aaron's descendants, the priests, repeat, His faithful love endures forever. Let all who fear the Lord repeat, His faithful love endures forever. Let's hear you repeat it. His faithful love endures forever. His faithful love endures forever. In my distress I prayed to the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is for me, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Yes, the Lord is for me. He will help me. I will look in triumph at those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in people. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Though hostile nations surrounded me, I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. Yes, they surrounded and attacked me, but I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. They swarmed all around me like bees. They blazed against me like a crackling fire. But I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. My enemies did their best to kill me, but the Lord rescued me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. Songs of joy and victory are sung in the camp of the godly. The strong right arm of the Lord has done glorious things. The strong right arm of the Lord is raised in triumph. The strong right arm of the Lord has done glorious things. I will not die. Instead, I will live to tell what the Lord has done. The Lord has punished me severely, but he did not let me die. Open for me the the gates where the righteous enter, and I will go in and thank the Lord. These gates lead to the presence of the Lord, and the godly enter there. I thank you for answering my prayer and giving me victory. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Whoa, that sounds familiar. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Please, Lord, save us. 
Please, Lord, give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God shining upon us. Take the sacrifice and bind it with cords on the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. I thank you, God, for your goodness, your faithful, infinite love towards us. Thank you that we can look back at what you've done with gratitude and look forward at what we haven't yet seen, knowing that your love and faithfulness never fails. What an amazing thing to be able to thank God simply for his love and for giving us this day, for allowing us to wake up, to be here together. But I want to go back to verse 22 of that passage. Do you notice the reference to the stone which the builders rejected? If you see also in, in Isaiah, and we see obviously with the, with the story of Christ, we know that that's representative of Jesus. And although he's rejected, he still becomes the cornerstone of the foundation of God's forever family, established through the line of David, the shoot of new growth from the chopped down stump of David's family tree. Tracing the genealogy of Christ and thinking about his family tree, tracing back down to that stump of, of Jesse that Isaiah talks about, it's been one way for us and my family, Ellie and I, to start thinking about the anticipation of Advent, the excitement, the hope, and the joy of the arrival of Christ has much more impact the more you understand the grief and the gravity of having a family tree that's been chopped down. But then to see and have hope in that new growth that's shooting out. Looking forward with hope and excitement for Christmas is what celebrating Advent is all about, at least for, for my family. And we'd love to encourage you all to join us in choosing to place the focus of Christmas on Christ is really what it's about. As we enjoy all the wonderful traditions that bring our families together and, and that we have fun doing, whether it's giving gifts or having food or music and decorations, uh, telling stories, all of that is, is good, but we can choose to trace truly the, the reason for the season, the reason we have any hope or joy at all to its roots, roots in Scripture and in Christ. And next week, Lord willing, we'll get to light the first of our Advent candles as a church family, which is just a nice visual reminder of the, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, truly building that anticipation and excitement in a visible, tangible way. Uh, Ellie and I are in a pretty fun season of getting to kind of talk through the different traditions that we may or may not want to establish with our kids as they're growing up in the holidays. But it's really healthy for anyone in any season whether you have kids or not, or whether you are a kid or were once a kid or will forever be a kid, um, it's healthy for anyone in any, any season to think about and assess our priorities going into the month of December. For example, are we, just super simple, are we more excited about the gifts that we plan on giving to other people or the gifts that we hope to receive? Are we more familiar with the Christmas-themed fantasy worlds of Santa and Rudolph and Frosty, which I love, they're fun. But are we more familiar with those than the actual real Christmas story that happened in the real world? Are we becoming overwhelmed and allowing ourselves to wallow in 
worry or anxiety about social situations or familial tensions that can come to head during the holidays or all the things that we wish we had and don't have? Or are we focusing on ways that we can simply show kindness and compassion to our fellow humans and finding our greatest joy in those opportunities above all else? You probably, these are messages you hear around Christmas a lot, and it's all easier said than done, but it's, it's well worth the effort of simply trying to frame your mind ahead of time going into it. It can help a lot. One way or another, in my house, we'll be celebrating Advent in a way that points to Christ, of course, first and foremost, and brings us together as a family to read Scripture on a daily basis. So we'll have scripture readings for each day of the month of December. There are all kinds of different Advent calendars and devotionals, the things you can hang on the wall or apps on your phone, depending on what you want to do. I would just encourage, encourage you uh, to join us, not just on Sunday mornings for the Advent readings, but each day of the week, whether it's by yourself or with your families, or you maybe even get a friend to join you. Um, spend some time preparing your hearts for the Advent of Christ. Yeah, ask yourself, where will your attention be this, this next few weeks? And in the, in the meantime, I want to encourage you with this. Whether, whatever it is we're going through right now, and whatever it is that God has in store for us later on, we are not going through it alone. First of all, our Creator Himself is with us. And we have, by the grace of God and in the power of His Spirit, through each other, the assurance in the love and peace and joy promised in Christ. Of Christ himself, Hebrews says, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly, to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. It's because of Christ that we're not alone, that we are always seen and heard and understood by the one person who loves us the most and who can relate to every kind of struggle that we experience. And according to the model that Christ set, we are here to carry out the ministry of Christ that he started by serving each other and building each other up to serve others. Like Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. This is what results in great joy, bearing one another's burdens in the midst of trials, not the dissolution of all troubles and trials and challenges going away. It's bearing with each other through those trials and challenges. I'm going to close with Colossians chapter 3. If you want to read with me, you can go ahead and turn there. I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation. This is a passage that just always seems applicable to really anyone who's placed their faith in Christ. 
It also offers a glimpse into what life in Christ looks like and what that life entails for anyone who may not have made that decision yet. So I, I just love this passage. It's a great go-to passage. I've probably read it here many times, but that's okay. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth, for you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and He lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him. God the Father. Whatever you do or say, he means us to take that quite literally. Whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Father, I pray today that we would be honorable representatives of you, knowing we don't always get it right, but as a church, knowing that you do delight in us, especially when we are united together, whether simply to praise your name and express our thanks for who you are and what you've done, or to get together to accomplish good things for your kingdom, good things for your name, good things for people that brings healing and, and restoration and, and even joy and peace in the midst of tribulations. Lord, I just pray that you would <clears throat> allow us each to become agents of joy and hope especially in the season of Advent. Let us all be ready to explain the hope that we have in Christ, especially as we celebrate um, this 
this season of looking forward with anticipation to the arrival of the greatest gift that's ever been given. I thank you, and I praise you. I thank you for this church and for the blessing that it is to stand here and, and uh, share from your word and to just be a part of this family. I pray that you would uh, help us all <clears throat> to grow closer to each other and to you. Whatever we do or say, let it be as good representatives of you with gratitude and thankfulness to the Father. In Jesus' name, amen.